Welcome to Dear Dio, your resource for honest advice and real authenticity for your journey from medical school to residency. I'm your host, Michael Garrison. I'm a fourth year medical student, not much longer though, uh, graduation's coming up, and I'm an incoming PGY1 neurology resident. And today we are lucky enough to have soon to be Dr. Michael Harbour, DO, incoming PGY1 psychiatry resident at ETSU in Johnson City, Tennessee. He and I talk about imposter syndrome, applying a holistic approach and the osteopathic tenants to psychiatry, getting a pet during med school, how to get more involved and share your passion in psychiatry. We also talk about auditions and interviews, so you do not want to miss this episode. But first, good afternoon, Michael Harbour, or Dr. Michael Harbour, DO, incoming PGY1 psychiatry resident at ETSU. Do you want to give us a quick introduction to who you are and a little bit about your journey towards medicine? Yeah, I'd love to. I just want to tell the viewers that it was fun having the same name during medical school because <laughs> usually that was a problem with males. But you're the first female Mike I've, I've met. So you were girl Mike. I was boy Mike. We made it work. And, you um, know, just a side note, I want to mention that, like, this is happening to me in my cohort of residents and I don't know what to do. There's a Mike and I am also Mike and it's just I don't know what to do. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> You'll make it work like we did. Exactly. Anyways, um, so I, I'm a lifelong Tennessean. I uh, went to medical school at LMUD Con with you, Lincoln Memorial University in East Tennessee. And uh, I don't know if I have a Southern accent at all. Sometimes people tell me I have a little bit of a twang. But anyways, I enjoyed living in the South. I tell people that I have a sweet tea running in my veins. So I've, I've lived here my whole life and I really enjoy it. And I'm glad that I get to stay here for residency at East Tennessee State University. But anyways, I grew up in Mill, Tennessee. Actually, my family's from a very small town. They recently got their first red light, which was a pretty big deal. And um, yeah, very small town, small town living. Everybody knows each other. But I actually ended up moving to a suburb of Nashville where I grew up. And that's actually kind of where I started to become interested in medicine. Um, Because before I became or wanted to become a doctor, I wanted to be an Olympic swimmer. Um, Something that I did growing up was competitive swimming. I did that for about 15 years. And I always dreamed of hoisting that gold medal around my neck. That was always my dream in life. And when that didn't work out because of injuries and other uh, reasons, I decided that I was interested in medicine. And I first got that first interest from my swim coach, who was also a physician. Um, And now he's actually the Olympic swim team doctor for the United States swim team. So pretty cool how that worked out. But he really taught me about the human body and recovery and the relationships you can build with people and also the leader that you can be um, working in a collaborative effort with other people, whether it be physicians, mid-levels, nurses and other staff members. So I think that that interaction with him really solidified um, why I want to be a physician and ultimately led me to going to medical school and becoming a psychiatrist. That's amazing. I love that connection. I had no idea that your swim coach had such a pivotal role in you becoming a physician. That's amazing. Um, And he honestly must have been a great leader on top of all of that. So do you mind telling the listeners a little bit about what led you to psychiatry and when you decided that that was the right path for you? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you asked me that because I would say that I was really the antithesis of someone who would probably go into psychiatry one day. I was the type of person that would hide my feelings. I didn't like to express them to others. I like to be that tough guy that, like I said, would bottle his feelings up and and not show any weakness, if you want to call it that. But eventually, um, during my swimming career, as I had success, I ultimately had some failures. I had some injuries that set me back, and it really messed with my mental health. And that's when I decided that I need to get help. And fortunately, my swim coach, his wife is actually a mental health counselor. So being able to sit down with her and have those discussions was really enlightening. And it really told me, hey, addressing your mental health can have a big impact on your life, not only emotionally and mentally, but also physically. And I was really turned on by that. And I started to think, you know, I sort of have those qualities. I like listening to others. I'm an empathetic person. Maybe I can be the person in the other chair. 
And that's where I started to kind of pivot from, I wanted to do maybe sports medicine, family medicine, to specifically psychiatry. You know, I also, you know, I work out a ton. I was never kind of on track to becoming an Olympian or anything like that. But the connection between your mental health and your physical health is so big. And I definitely notice when, you know, my mental health isn't as strong, I'm not as good in the gym or I'm not as fast of a runner. And so making those connections really early on is is really a, a, a strong connection to make. Um, I 100% agree. Like you are a great listener. I always knew that if I had a problem, I could tell you and you would you're so non-judgmental. I think that that's the thing that that gets me about you and like why it feels so right that you are going into psychiatry. Um, and do you mind letting us know, you know, when did you decide? Because I, I had always kind of imagined, I thought that you wanted to do something like family med. Was there a certain point in med school? Was it a course or anything that, that solidified psychiatry for you? You know, I would say not necessarily a course, even though I would say my behavioral health classes I enjoy the most. But specifically, I'd say during COVID is when I kind of uh, started to gravitate toward the field of psychiatry because, like you said, people would come to me for advice, for help, because they knew I was non-judgmental. I would listen to them um, and I'd ultimately hopefully give them good advice. And I realized, you know, people were doing this without me actually reaching out to them. Maybe I have some qualities that I can use in the field of medicine. Because psychiatry is such a unique field of medicine, it takes a certain person with certain skill sets. And ultimately, I want to go into something that my skill sets align with, a profession that is needed, which psychiatry obviously is, and we'll talk about that later, and one that I can really have a big impact on. And those three things really align for me. And I think uh, just helping people out during COVID, uh, specifically, I remember I had a really tough time during my second year where my mother had breast cancer, my dad um, was going through a lot, uh, several surgeries that he had to undergo. And I felt like things were kind of falling apart. And then one of my friends was also uh, dealing with similar issues. Her father had a pretty serious form of cancer and being able to help her and walk her through the issues that she was uh, undergoing really helped me realize how important mental health is and what kind of impact I can have on it. That's amazing. I keep saying that's amazing, but everything that you say is, <laughs> everything you're saying is so, so amazing and so inspirational, honestly. So uh, I noticed when I was going over the NRMP data for this year's match, psychiatry had very few unfilled positions after the main match. Every single year, psychiatry has less and less unfilled positions, which goes to show it's increasing competitiveness. What do you think, why do you think so many more students are becoming interested in psychiatry? It's interesting you bring that up because I remember during my clinical rotations, I would talk to psychiatrists and other physicians and they're like, yeah, that's usually one of the easier ones to get into. And I told them, you know, that's not the case anymore. Um, people are very interested in psychiatry and actually the unfilled positions each year are usually from programs that didn't participate in the match. So usually it's positions that are pretty difficult to get. And usually there's far and few between out there to scramble into, which means you really have to be competitive during the whole interview match process. I would say that the mental health awareness, especially after COVID, was a big factor in people's interest. I don't know if you see on Twitter and Facebook, all these medical students that like to document their journey through medicine, oftentimes will talk about the mental aspect of it. Um, the fact that many of them uh, undergo what we call imposter syndrome where you feel like maybe you aren't cut out to be the doctor that you thought you were and how you have to struggle with that. So I think that that sort of connection and understanding uh, drew people to psychiatry. I think that the lifestyle is something that is, people are very interested in because oftentimes you get to make your own schedule. You can work outpatient. You can work inpatient. You can work 100% telemedicine. What we're doing right now, you can do all day long from your couch. So there's a lot of options in the field of psychiatry. And then that holistic approach, especially from an osteopathic uh, perspective, integrating the mind, body, and spirit is something that people are interested in. And I think uh, one of the number one factors is jobs. The simple fact that um, you can work about wherever you want to. They're willing to hire you because they need you, especially in the underserved areas. But even the metropolitan areas, you can probably get a job if you just call them and say, hey, hire me.
<laughs> There's a ton of job security for psychiatry and any aspect of mental health resources nowadays, especially after COVID, like you were talking about. And, you know, that that holistic approach that you bring back to to osteopathic medicine, you know, whether whether you got a DO degree in order to, to practice this holistic approach or not, uh, the fact is, is that most, if not all, specialties can adopt this holistic approach in some way or another. And, you know, the one that maybe people wouldn't think of first is psychiatry because, you know, it's very hands-off. It's very um, kind of a sterile specialty. So I love that you that you brought that up. I think that it does have a, a pivotal role in, in osteopathy and like holistic approaches. So that's amazing. I keep saying that I need to stop. <laughs> that's great. That's 10 out of 10. So we both started medical school in 2019. And during our first year, right after getting back from spring break, we got the COVID lockdown news. And I know that we talked a little bit about COVID and how COVID really, I think it affected everybody in general, in everybody's mental health in general, but you talked a little bit about how it affected you specifically and how it kind of inspired your goals towards psychiatry. But what was your initial reaction to taking your medical school curriculum online and how much did your day-to-day activities change? So I would say the most difficult part wasn't actually the curriculum because most of the curriculum I was doing online anyways. I actually wasn't the typical class goer. I like to watch them after that they recorded. So that was easy to adjust to. It was the simple fact that I felt isolated. A lot of people went home. We were in a small town and I felt like I was in some old Western town with uh, the dust bunnies, you know, going down the street and, and no one there because it felt like everybody was either locked in their house or away from the town that we were living in. So that was really difficult for me feeling that isolated and feeling like I was going through medical school alone. And that's why I really enjoyed people reaching out to me because that was somewhat therapeutic having those conversations with them. And it gives you human connection when we need it the most. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing we can allude to uh, soon is uh, the fact that I did need a companion to help me besides just humans, um, a furry companion, an Australian shepherd, who helped me during that critical time. Nice. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, I stayed as well in the little town and that was really, really hard. I had to kind of outsource who who I was hanging with, who who is here, you know, like I felt like I was in I Am Legend when he goes on the radio and he's like, is anybody out there? That's That's how I felt. And that's so dramatic to say, but literally I just needed somebody to work out with or I just needed somebody to go on a walk with. And you really, you know, you lost that that human connection. And for me, that was a big part of my mental health. I liked to hang out with people, even though I did most of my curriculum online anyway, like you, I really needed that that friend group. I needed the support. I needed the study group, et cetera. So you were just talking about it. You got your dog, Asher. He's gorgeous. Um He's supposedly a mini Australian shepherd, but he's very large (laughs) and you got him during COVID, right? So do you have any words of wisdom for students who are thinking about getting a pet during medical school? Yes. um, Just two words, do it. Um, It's totally worth it getting a dog during medical school. If that's what you're inclined to do. I know you're a cat person, um, but uh, uh, dogs are definitely a, a therapeutic animal that can help you during a difficult time. And I would say the main thing about having a dog is having a scheduled regimen that you can go through. So me and Asher would wake up, we'd go play fetch in the morning, I would go study, and then we would take a break and we would go do something else. We'd go for a walk, we'd go to the dog park, but having a schedule where they're included, I think is really important because dogs just can't sit around and sleep all day unless they're a little tiny chihuahua and an Australian shepherd needs exercise. But the good thing is you need exercise as well. If I didn't have Asher with me, I probably would have just stayed inside. But he really got me outside, uh, helped me get my vitamin D each day and and helped me uh, stay connected (laughs) with the world uh, during a time where we were disconnected. Yeah, and I think one of the main things why I think 
you and a couple of our other friends who got dogs during this kind of similar time period or during medical school in general that I think contributed so much to y'all's success was the fact that you guys had each other and you guys kind of, it was almost like a soccer mom group, you know, like you're going to take the kids on this day. Um, I've, I've got to go out of town. Do you mind watching Asher? Do you mind watching um, the other ones? And so it was, it almost united you guys in a whole other family type of way where this is like my soapbox, but I also tried to get a dog during medical school and it did not work out for me. I am too high maintenance in myself in order to like sustain another another thing uh, that needs as much attention as a dog or a human, because honestly, let's let's be honest, like dogs need a lot of work. Um, so that's why I am more of a cat person uh, because I can leave my cat overnight and she can chill and she's got her own, you know, water and automatic feeder and all of that. But anyway. But no shame to me, I recognize that I was not fit to continue taking care of this animal. And my mom was nice enough to take him off my hands and give him a very loving home and all of that. But, you know, you can try it. And uh, if it doesn't work out for you, have a good backup plan. But know that that community factor is is so real. It's so pivotal for, for anyone. What do you think? Oh, I absolutely agree. And one thing that really helped me out, especially when he was a puppy and he had all that energy is having somebody next door that also had a puppy that he could play with. Uh, She would take him to the park some days. I would take him to the park other days. And the whole community really helped me out. And I felt like Asher just wasn't my dog. He was Harrogate's dog because everyone (laughs) knew Asher and loved hanging out with Asher, which I was more than happy to hand them off sometimes when I need to focus on my studies. Um, But for the most part, he wasn't a hassle. Um, When I went out somewhere, he went out with me. Even if we had get togethers, he would probably come with me. Um, He was just, he just wanted to be a part of the group. And I was more than glad to uh, include him. And I think you also got him at like the perfect time. You got him right at the beginning of COVID. He was just a tiny, tiny little baby. He was not like in a pound for a period of time or anything like that, you basically went and picked him up as soon as you possibly could and raised him from like a fetus, basically. Um, So, (laughs) and I think that that also helps, you know, like you are establishing your relationship with this dog. He trusts you so much. You trained him perfectly. Um, So I think that that just goes to show like, it's all about timing as well. You have to time it well. You were able to dedicate a lot of your time towards training him because we were in COVID, because we were in lockdown, you could study from home, et cetera, right? Honestly, being locked down was beneficial because I could be with him more so that I could do that training so that he would be more obedient. And if, if I could give any advice to a new dog owner, um, leave it is the most important skill they need to learn. Um, they need to leave their food or leave the toy uh, whenever you make that command. And if you can do that, then they're going to be a, an obedient dog. And he's actually with me right now and you haven't heard him yet because he's pretty good. Yeah. And he knows that when, when I'm busy and I'm doing my work, um, he's going to be quiet. Afterwards, we'll go outside and we'll play. So just reinforcing that with him has really worked for me. I'm not against getting dogs from pounds and, uh, and, and different sites that uh, have you know been through difficult situations, but getting that dog in the puppy stage and being able to train it basically from birth is a huge benefit if you want a dog that is obedient and well-trained. Definitely. I mean, I, same thing here, you know, I, I picked up my, or my mom's dog now, but we share him. His name is Ace. He's perfect. But he was kind of a menace when I picked him up because he was like four months old. He spent his first four months of life in a, in a cage with a bunch of other dogs going to the bathroom wherever he wanted, barking all day long, no repercussions at all. And so when I picked, finally went and picked him up, he looked perfect to me. It looked like he's so quiet. But as soon as I brought him home, he was a terror to my house and to me. And I went through a lot of, uh, I went through like this kind of like weird depression where I was like, is it me? Is it him? Is it both? Am I a bad person if I return this dog? Am I a bad person if I give it to my mom? Like, am I not good enough? All of that stuff. And so, and I remember you helped me a ton when I was going through that. Like I was sobbing daily. Um, So 
everyone's journey is different, but I love that it worked out for you and Asher and the rest of our friends who all have dogs. Like I have so much respect for you and all of them that you guys were able to train your dogs to be such good dogs while in medical school. It's just, it's inspiring, really. Great work. Yeah, just to add to that, dogs go through trauma just like humans do. And unfortunately, maybe your dog went through some trauma that made it more difficult to train him and, and help him during that those early times. But it's not necessarily your fault. Uh, unfortunately, just like humans, uh, they need their own recovery process. And, and sometimes it takes time. And I'm sure that Ace is doing a lot better now. Definitely. he's He's got his own problems right now that we're working through. We'll probably have to put him into some training like formal training because mm-hmm. he's going through some trauma right now and he's acting out because of it. So we're going to have to do some some training formally. Um, so if the listeners didn't catch it, we both went to LMU Decom for medical school in Harriet, Tennessee, which is very rural. It probably has more cows than humans in it. But like you said, Mike, you're also from a rural spot in Tennessee. And I know I did my psych rotation in the Tri-Cities area, which is actually where your residency program is. So that's really fun. And I think that we were one of maybe two or three inpatient psych facilities within several hours. Um, And I'd imagine that the need for psychiatrists in rural locations is pretty high. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. So uh all of us at LMUDCOM have the opportunity to do our core clinical rotations, usually at a more rural site or a region that is more rural. I know you were in the Appalachian region. I was in Winchester, Tennessee, which is uh, pretty rural. It's uh, southern Tennessee, close to the Alabama border. And unfortunately, in these underserved areas, which I call them, there are hardly any psychiatrists. If there are psychiatrists, they're not available to anyone except their select few patients. Um, in the state of Tennessee, 50% of psychiatrists don't take Medicare or Medicaid because they don't get the reimbursements that they want. So there's a huge population of people that just are not receiving psychiatric care. So what happens oftentimes, it's put on the primary care physicians, which some of them do a really good job, but oftentimes a lot of them don't have the training because that's not something that they're necessarily trained to do, you know, treat something like schizophrenia. That's uh, an antipsychotic needs to be in the hands of a psychiatrist. Um, so that's something that's really important to me is strengthening the underserved communities. I'm going to a program that specifically trains us for that. And that's something that I hopefully will implement into my practice. And something that I'm interested in actually is a collaborative care model, working with primary care physicians as a psychiatrist and being a, what I call kind of like the air traffic controller, where I can help them treat their patients Uh, from a different location uh, and have a more broad spectrum practice so that I can help more people that are underserved and need of help. That I've never heard of. And I love that care model. That is fantastic because that's exactly what I noticed while I've spent my last uh, two years of my life in the Tri-Cities area. Majority, I would say majority of the patients that came into the primary care when I was on my family med rotations were coming in for psychiatric help. And if you looked online, there were basically no psychiatrists. There were mental health counselors, there were inpatient psych facilities, but there were basically no outpatient psychiatrists that can fulfill your your help with whether that's something like more simple to treat, like maybe run-of-the-mill anxiety or depression, or I'm not sleeping well at night, something something like that, to something very complex like bipolar, schizophrenia, um, even things like functional neurological disorder, things like that, that need the help of a psychiatrist. I love that there's this collaborative care model that you just mentioned. And I think that so many other so many other specialties could also benefit from doing something similar, but I love that psychiatry is is on its road to doing that, and I think that there's a big, big market for that as well. Like I think that that you'll help a lot of people while saving yourself the time, but also you have to rely on the primary care physician to know when to stop, which is also, I think, can be tricky for them because they see so much psych stuff that they might have a hard time being like, whoa, maybe this is a little bit too much. Maybe I shouldn't add 
Abilify onto this person with refractory depression? Well, I just want to say in general, I agree with your statement that um, some primary care physicians and mid-levels take extra steps um, in order to treat their patients that they may not be actually trained for. And that's why it's super important to be able to be a resource to them and let them know, hey, we want to help you treat your patients um, because these antipsychotics have long-lasting side effects. They can cause something called extrapyramidal syndrome, tardive dyskinesia, where your tongue is to the side. Uh, there's this uh, Harry Potter character that a lot of people attribute it to. I think his name's Barty Crouch, but you'd have to fact check me on that. But horrible side effects that can come from antipsychotics, and it, it's a balance. How do you treat a patient effectively, but also not give them these side effects that could potentially really... Uh, Some of them are permanent. Yeah, so permanent side effects that could really hinder their life. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't even think about mid-level or advanced care providers, online psych help. Have you have you seen like like mm-hmm. advertisements? Like BetterHelp. Not even just BetterHelp because BetterHelp, I think, is mostly like um, counseling services. But, okay. but things like HERS and HIMSS, have you seen ads for those where you can get like Lexapro completely mm-hmm. online, stuff like that? I just really struggle with getting behind something like that. Like I, I love that we are, we're trying to get people the help that they need in the most efficient way because we do have this roadblock of not enough psychiatrists or not enough physicians who are trained to prescribe these drugs. But at the same time, it's hard because are we are we really helping people to the best of our abilities by letting them purchase Lexapro online like it's a pair of shoes? You know, it's just this this fine gray area. The easy answer is we're not because psychiatry or the field of psychiatry is such an investigative and introspective field in which you really have to dig deep to figure out what's going on with the patient. You have to go beyond those surface level questions to determine how you can treat their mental disorder or or whatever is going on most efficiently. Um, so it's really important as a psychiatrist to not just hand them drugs, but see, hey, can I implement psychotherapy? Um, can I implement something that's non-medication? Uh, things like going outside, going for walks, uh, just simple things that can make a big difference in somebody's life. Uh, getting up in the morning and not sleeping all day instead of just handing them a medication, telling them that this will take care of them. Because oftentimes it's not. Um, depression and anxiety, it's a its a multidisciplinary approach. The antidepressant is just one aspect of the treatment. Um, there's so much more involved, more you know, holistic side of it in terms of exercise, diet, sleep patterns that impact somebody's ability to get over depression. So that's something that we really need to be cognizant of and understand that these medications should not be given out like candy. It's something that we should really listen to the patient and determine, is this medication right for them or is there another path that we need to go? Yeah, you know, and I I can remember, you know, I established a primary care physician literally just in order to attack my anxiety. And I think that mm-hmm. that's that's the thing for most younger people, you know, like I don't have high blood pressure. I don't need, I don't need my, my labs checked every six months. You know, I literally went there in order to say, Hey, I think that my anxiety is out of control. I think that I might need a medication for it. And, you know, a no, no fault to my primary care physician, but she was gung ho ready to slam me with a, with a medication instead of asking me more introspective questions like, how are you sleeping? What do you eat? How often do you work out? Have you ever thought about meditation? I know a, I know a counselor. Mm-hmm. I could refer you to counseling. All of those things were completely skipped over and I was still billed for a level four visit. That's besides the fact. I'm still a little bit bitter, obviously. <laughs> um, but I love that you, you brought back the holistic method. You know, I can definitely tell a difference in my mood when I'm eating well versus when I'm not eating well. I can tell a difference in my mood when I've switch to night shift um, based on two weeks ago. I had my first night shift in med school ever. And literally, I I was so irritable. I was so down. I was so just like a, like a loose fuse um, inside of me. And I think that some people are probably more sensitive to changes in their environment affecting their mood than other people. 
Uh, and I think that there's a lot of science that's like coming up about that. There's so much science coming up in psychiatry in general. That's why I love psychiatry. I love neuropsych specifically. And neurology and psychiatry are like coming more back together. So just for the listeners, so back in the day before we had, you know, MRIs and stuff like that, neurology and psychiatry were seen as almost the same thing. We couldn't explain a lot of things that the mind would do, and so we relied on neurology and psychiatry. And as we developed more imaging, more blood tests, um, lumbar punctures, testing like that, neurology kind of split off from psychiatry and was seen as like the harder science, whereas psychiatry was seen more as like a softer science. But nowadays, like they are coming back together and I love to see it. Um, I love to see now, you know, we have psychiatry coming up with all of these really fascinating studies that, that go over like functional MRIs and depression and anxiety and schizophrenia, things like that, that I, some, most of it, I have no idea. Like you could probably speak on it so much better than I can, Mike, but I personally am just really excited about that. I, I will say uh, one of my first rotations is going to be in neurology. There, there is a lot of interplay between the two. And I'm excited to learn a little bit more about your field because I think it'll definitely make me a better psychiatrist. Yeah. And that. That goes to show. So for for psychiatry, I believe that they have to do at least one rotation mm -hmm. in neurology, which is usually about four weeks. And for neurology, we also have to do at least one month in psychiatry. So they are very much interconnected. And honestly, I think that we should do more. I think that it should be like two months. But anyway, okay. So um, getting off the rails here. So Looking back, what are some things that you wish you knew as a third-year medical student pursuing psychiatry? Yeah, so uh, there's several things actually that come to my mind that I'm like, I wish I would have known that when I was applying. You want to get involved in psych-specific uh, events, whether that's going to the APA, American Psychiatric Association conferences, uh, mental health, being part of mental health initiatives, doing psych-specific uh, research, things that uh, go along with psych will show programs that you have a genuine interest in it. Um, this was a problem in the past, and I don't know if it's a problem anymore, but a lot of people used to dual apply. They would apply to another specialty and psychiatry. So programs had to figure out, is this person really wanting to be a psychiatrist or is psychiatry uh, their plan if they don't get into their specialty of choice? No one wants to be the backup plan. So that's something that's really important is highlighting that on your resume. Um, also, I would tailor your application to your specific interest in psychiatry. Um, something that I try to really harp on is my interest in underserved medicine. Um, I was involved in things like remote area medical RAM events, which really helped with underserved populations. Uh, in my personal statement, I talked about wanting to work with underserved populations and ideas I had to fix the issues that go on with underserved psychiatry. And that's something that really was highlighted in my application and we spoke about in my interviews. That helps you align with a program. Ultimately, where you want to go, you need to see uh, what type of program is it and do I align with them? Are they more academic research-based? Are they a community program that wants to reach out to the underserved community? What type of program are they and how can I be a better applicant towards them? Because that's ultimately is what's going to get you an interview and make you a better applicant for them because they want to know that you're the type of student that they're looking for. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying, you know, just showing you're passionate through different events and really tailoring mm -hmm. your application to fit the mold of what, who you are, but also to show them that you are what they want and that it's actually going to be a good fit. Do you feel like that summarizes that pretty succinctly? Absolutely. Something I would do before interview day is I'd often research the program and see what kind of things are they involved in. And is it something that I've done in the past? Uh, is it something that I'd be interested in doing in the future? I'd bring that up during my interview. Um, that shows commonalities, things that you know, you're interested in that they are as well. And that's ultimately what they want, because there's a lot of people that we call it interview hoarding. They just do as many interviews as possible just to have as many lottery tickets as they can. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that people should limit their interviews to about 20 at the most. People even say 15 is a better number. Um, I did 
17 interviews and I was exhausted by about interview 10. So I don't know if I would do that if, <laughs> if I could uh, start over. But most of mine aligned, again, with community-based hospitals or hospitals that uh, prioritized underserved psychiatry. And that's how I was able to get more interviews and ultimately have success in my match. So when you were looking at programs and you were looking for a program that focused on Mm -hmm. serving the underserved, how did you go about knowing whether or not they actually served the underserved? Um, Did it say something on their website? Oftentimes it'll be on their website and oftentimes you can just do it based off location. Um, If it's in a big metropolitan area, it's probably not a program that will emphasize that. Or if it's a big university academic program, they're probably going to lean more towards being focused on the research aspect and more academic driven uh, rather than being focused on, can we make these uh, great psychiatrists that can go out and work in a multitude of fields and serve a wide variety of patients? That's the type of program that I was looking for. And it wasn't too hard to spot it, especially during the interview process. The program directors are pretty specific on what they're looking for and what their program wants to get out of you and ultimately wants to make you into. And that that's what really helped me make my decision when I was ranking my different sites. So just to um, kind of go back for a second, you mentioned getting involved in conferences and research in order to show you're, you're more passionate about the field. It's not just a backup to you. How do you recommend students going mm-hmm. um, to get involved in conferences or to get involved in research? A lot of DO programs don't have as much research and conference funds available to students. So do you have any recommendations on how students can get those? So in terms of research, that was hard. And what you got to understand is psychiatry interlays in almost any aspect of medicine. So you don't have to be on the psychiatry rotation to see a really cool diagnosis and write a paper on it. I was actually doing an internal medicine rotation where I saw a patient with conversion disorder, also known as functional neurological disorder, and was able to write up a paper on it, and it was really helpful in my application. So just having an eye during your third year for a patient, maybe they're undergoing surgery and they wake up and they're confused, and and, and that could be a paper that you could potentially uh, write it on. So just having the awareness of, hey, this may be the opportunity for me, that's usually how I would do research in terms of if I was wanting to do a case presentation, which is what most psychiatry people want to do. I didn't do psychiatry specific research. As you said, that's usually in more of a university setting. In terms of uh, getting involved in conferences, oftentimes you have to reach out to your school and let them know that this is something that you can benefit from. And maybe you're already involved in leadership. For example, I was in the Tennessee Osteopathic Medical Association. And I told them that I wanted to go do a conference. I can't remember where it was last year, but this year it's going to be in San Francisco but I actually did it online, which worked for me, but I wanted to go do this conference. It costs X amount. It's going to benefit this program, this organization I'm a part of. Can I go do it? Oftentimes they can find a way for you to get involved, but that's something I also want to address. So there are conferences you can do that are online that are completely free. Uh, One that I did was through Harvard. I don't know if you can still apply for it, but I believe you can. It's usually during this time of year. I remember doing it in the springtime but it was completely free. It was a uh, conference that really went over a lot of different psychiatry topics. And I thought it was really beneficial. I put it on my resume and I thought it really helped me out in terms of making me a more well-rounded psychiatry candidate. Getting involved in conferences, getting some research. And I think that a lot of medical students overlook the value of case reports in any specialty because they are so quick. You know, you just do a quick write-up. It it doesn't require a lot of testing. You don't have to go into a lab to do it. But honestly, they are as valuable as any other form of research that you can do in your third and fourth year. And they're really good in order to show, like you were saying, that you're passionate about the field. You're on your third year rotation. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, on your cardiology rotation or your surgery rotation. You see something a little bit more towards psychiatry. Do a write up. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't matter that you're on your surgery rotation. Just like you were saying, I think that that's genius. I was going to say about fifty percent of your interviews, they'll ask you what's a really cool or interesting. A psych patient that you were a part of and tell me about that experience. 
well, that ride up that I did was always the answer. And I knew so much about that patient that they were like, wow, <laughs> this is a really cool uh, story that you have about this conversion disorder patient. And you know a lot about it. And the reason that was the case is because I wrote a case presentation on her. So I highly recommend you do it just for the fact that it gives you a talking point. Exactly. And, you know, they don't know that you're reusing the same case report on every interview. You know, like I was also asked a very similar question, like, what's the what's the most interesting neurological condition that you saw? And if you know every nitty gritty detail about that case report or about that situation, then it doesn't matter that you're reusing that on every interview. Like they couldn't tell. And the fact that you know one really, really deeply goes to show that like you were very interested and, you know, invested in that patient. And, you know, I feel like I could talk with you all day about functional neurological disorder because I love functional neurological disorder. And it's honestly the bane of most neurologists existence because it's it's the toughest one. It's the one that you don't want it to be. You don't want it to be a functional condition. You want it to be something that's explainable through testing, through MRIs through anything, but there's no explanation for it. And so it often gets mislabeled. It gets misdiagnosed. It gets misunderstood. Most importantly, the patient is the person who suffers the most throughout that entire process because they are put through all the Mm -hmm. testing. They are convinced that nothing's actually wrong with them when indeed functional neurological disorder or conversion disorder is as real to the patient as as a myocardial infarction. It is just as as legit as a stroke and it should be treated as such and it's a shame that it's not so i'm glad that you know we have such good psychiatrists on board like mike coming into the field to help you know bring more awareness and i love that so i know this wasn't in the original outline but you started talking about um interviews and i love talking about interviews i only had i don't want to say only but i had 15 interviews you had 17 only 15 Exactly. In in the world of like, you know, discord and everything, it's hard to be like, oh, I see everybody else has like 20 something interviews. Um, so it's easy to, to minimize yourself, but you should be proud no matter what. So I had 15 interviews. You said that you had 17. I've mm. heard such fun things about psych interviews because they love to get in your head a little bit and uh, di- not diagnose you, but I've heard about Myers-Briggs being used and all of this fun stuff. So do you have any fun stories from your interviews? So I had one interview where it was a psychiatry resident, but I think the question was, if people were talking about you behind your back, what would they say about you? Oh. And that one really made me think, I was like, huh, you know it. What would they? Because I I don't know if there was necessarily an answer he was looking for, but that was a really introspective question because I had to think about it for a second. It kind of caught me. Yeah. I of course told them that they all love me, but that's another story. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I don't even know what I would say. I would, you know, you want to hope good things, but you never know what other people. You can't control other people's judgments. That's the toughest thing about uh, psychiatrists interviewing you is their job is to learn what people's strengths and weaknesses are, really break them down and understand the person. Based on the interview. Yes, based on the interview. (laughs) They are truly trained to interview people and to interview medical students. So that was really hard for me, always uh, looking back at after an interview and saying, did I say the right thing? Or when they rolled their eye that way, did I say something wrong or... There was some second guessing of myself, but then I eventually was like, hey, I don't need to look into all these innuendos because that'll just drive me crazy. And this is a long process and I'm just along for the ride. Yeah, it's such a long process. You can't get bogged down. I had a couple of weird judgmental kind of questions during my interview process and I just had to keep going. And when you know you're when you're in the moment. You don't even realize that it's judgmental. It's after you log off Mm -hmm. that you're like, hmm, I wonder what they meant by that, you know? (laughs) Is there anything that I didn't ask that maybe I should have or that you wanted to touch on? So I know we're running out of time, but just something maybe we could talk about is what are audition rotations like? How should I prepare for them? I think we, I was going to talk about the interview process, but I think we covered that. Um, So audition rotations are really like any other uh, audition rotation you do in another specialty. The main thing is you want to be able to get along with everybody. 
because if you're somebody that they can't get along with, it doesn't matter what you know, they're not going to want you. Um, number two, I think you need to have a basic foundation of psychiatry. Something I did is I would carry, carry around my DSM-5 pocketbook in my pocket so I could get it out if I need to look at a diagnosis and look at the diagnostic criteria. And that was a really easy way to impress my attendings and residents I was working with. Sometimes I do it behind their back and look in and be like, oh, this is the criteria that we need to look at. And they're like, oh, wow, I didn't know you knew that. <laughs> and then thir thirdly, it's important when they give you a patient, you have to own that patient. They are your patient. And that's something that was difficult for me on my first audition rotation. I did four of them. My first one, I wasn't, I was kind of passive, like, should I take this patient on as my own or am I really working under the attending and the resident? What they ultimately want you to do is walk into a room with confidence, talk to your patient, tell them what you're going to do for them and be able to walk out with confidence and tell your attending what the plan is moving forward. That's ultimately what they want. Even if you're wrong, they want to know that you can do that because they don't want somebody that's timid, shy, that can't go talk to their patients because that's ultimately what psychiatrists do. To the best of your ability, you really need to take ownership of your patients. And if a program doesn't let you do that, then they're not the right program for you because that's ultimately what you should do as a medical student, a resident. You're there to learn, but you're also there to finally take ownership of your patients and actually take the role of a doctor so that you can eventually become a doctor. <laughs> I think that that's what caught me off guard the most during my first audition too, was um, the fact that a lot of places will actually have you running the show in the room with the whole team behind you or like with your attending next to you. Like the attending will be like, okay, you're going to lead this encounter now. You're going to tell the patient what we're looking for ask them how they're doing, do the exam and give them all of the updates and ask them if they have any questions. You're the medical student doing that in front of a room of an attending, a bunch of residents, maybe a couple other medical students. And that's something that I did not have to do while I was on my third year at all. But I think that getting that under your belt as early as you can and feeling confident and comfortable with presenting in front of a big group like that in front of the patient goes a, goes a whole long way. And then what you were talking about when you said, you know, you don't have to know everything. I love that you mentioned that because that was what I was concerned with when I went into my auditions. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to know everything about everything or else they won't like me. Like, no, that you don't have to know everything, but ask the right questions, right? Know when to find the answers yourself versus, hey, do you mind explaining to me why we chose to treat with this drug instead of this drug, but always in like an open, mm -hmm. curious way rather than a, I was trained to do this. Why'd you guys do it like that? Never, ever, ever do that. Um, but yeah, the passion, let the passion shine forward. So if that means carrying around a pocket DSM, I mean, that book is really big, Mike. I'm glad you had big pockets. Well, I had the white <laughs> coat, so I, it could fit in there. There you go. Business casual. Usually business casual. Psychiatrists, we don't wear scrubs usually, unless maybe inpatient. Uh, usually we're business casual with our white coat on, professional buttoned up as much as we can. Bow tie sometimes. Oh, spicy. Okay. So this brings us to the final segment of the show. I feel like this hour just flew by. This is the segment that I like to call our final Rex as we sign off of this case. Um, this is where we send you off with something our host really loves or our guest really loves that they would like to recommend to you. And unfortunately, I mentioned Brain on Fire last week, which is what I know Mike really wanted to mention this week. It's a great book, whether you're going into neurology, psychiatry, internal medicine, family medicine, doesn't matter. Read the book. It's great. But it can be our honorable mention this week. Is there anything else, Mike, that you would like to send our listeners off with? So if you're going into the field of psychiatry and you're interested in learning more about PTSD... Um, look no further than the father of PTSD. He's a Dutch psychiatrist from Boston University, and he wrote this book that's called The Body Keeps the Score. It's actually a really popular book that a lot of psychiatrists and people in the field have read, and I highly recommend you read it. I've been wanting to read it. Yeah, I actually have a copy of it. I'll have to send it to you. Oh, my gosh. I, I might just buy it on Amazon today because honestly, I've been thinking about it. And now that you say it, I'm like, wow, this is the universe telling me to read this book. Can you just give us a quick like premise of the book? 
Yeah, so it's about uh, trauma being the underlying cause of many mental health and physical issues, about how trauma can affect the neuroanatomy, as well as influence the stress hormones that affect us physically as well as mentally. Trauma is kind of like a fire detector or a fire alarm, smoke detector. You don't know when it's going to go off. It can go off any time of the day, and it can have a really long-lasting, horrible effect on your life and how to restore that function that you once had uh, between your prefrontal cortex, which is the rational part of your brain, and the emotional part, the amygdala, whether it be through yoga, swimming, also uh, EMDR, uh, eye movement desensitization, reprocessing is supposed to be something that's really useful for PTSD. So it really delves into it on what it is and how you can treat it. And there's no one better to listen to, like I said, than I cannot remember his name because it's a Dutch name, but um, like I said, he's from Boston University and he has tons of experience in the field of PTSD all the way back to the Vietnam War. Wow. Looks like I know what I'm reading because I just finished my unhelpful self-help book. Um, but yeah, I just finished Brain on Fire not too long ago and it was also great. So I will keep y'all updated on that. And uh just another plug, uh, if you're interested in psychiatric movies, uh, a couple that I would recommend is one, The Aviator with Leonardo DiCaprio, where he has severe OCD. Um, and then there's Silence of the Lambs, which is a really good movie about a psychiatrist who's also a serial killer. That's more just fun to watch. And then Primal <laughs> Fear is a good movie, too, about somebody who acts like he has a psychiatric disorder, but potentially does not. And uh, it's also kind of a murder mystery as well. There so. are so many good psych movies too. I took personality psych at a community college because I originally wanted to become a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Oh, cool. um, and we watched, uh, we watched like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, A Beautiful Mind. Uh, I also really love the movie Girl Interrupted that that's, like takes place in an inpatient psych facility. And I don't know if you've seen the Brain on Fire movie, it's on, on Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. Yep. And um, I forget the girl who stars in it, but she did a pretty good job. I don't like the dramatization of it. I think that like they kind of skimped over a couple of the real neurological parts and they focused more so on the drama of it, which I thought mm -hmm. was kind of wrong because like I think that it kind of took away from Susanna's perspective and her experience and it kind of like boiled her down to the drama of it all but um that being said i read the book and then i watched the movie which is what i think everyone should do you should read the book and then watch the movie um and then along with those other movies that you mentioned for sure so thank you so much mike for being on here and i wish you nothing but the best always Thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at dear.do.pod. Send me a DM. Let me know what you want to hear about on next week's episode. You can also check out the official website, deardopod.com for blog posts, guides, and you can actually submit your questions anonymously about all things medical school. Support the continuation of this podcast by leaving a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Original music by Cologne, recording and production by yours truly, and I hope to see you here next time.